So the specific um, reference today is from Hebrews 13.4 and it reads this. Let marriage be held in honour among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So this morning my aim is to honour marriage. That's what I want to do. I want to honour marriage. I think as a church we should honour marriage together. I want you to leave today thinking of marriage as a higher, more wondrous thing that you thought of when you came in. As I said though, that some of the discussion this morning might be a little bit difficult, but I don't want to be negative. I don't want to be negative at all. Uh, The writer of Hebrews said, let marriage be held in honour, so that's what I want to do. I want to honour it. But before I start, or as a way to start, uh, I think it's necessary and an important discussion to observe the ways in which marriage can be dishonoured. Today, I'm going to be quoting a lot. Um, And to begin with, I'd like to quote John Piper and actually recommend a book that he's written called This Momentary Marriage. Um, I'd like to recommend it to anyone. If you're married, if you're not married, if you want to be married, if you know someone who wants to be married, it doesn't really matter. The book is speaking about things that are important for everyone, regardless of your own personal marriage situation. He starts off like this in the book Momentary Marriage. There has never been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human vision is now and has always been gargantuan. Some cultures in history respect the importance and permanence of marriage more than others. Some, like our own, have such low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitudes toward marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous to most people. And to prove my point, this woman married a bridge. I kid you not. That is real. There's a real article. Uh, An Australian woman who's an artist went around the world recording the sounds that bridges made, uh, found the one in France and decided to marry it and uh, got the mayor's blessing to do so. As you can see down the bottom, it says, although her new husband may struggle to express his feelings, newlywed Jody said his, his being is very present and I feel at peace in his strong embrace. Now, obviously, that's not a real marriage, and we can laugh about it, because it's not a real marriage because it's not official. It's not a government marriage. I don't think she's going to get any tax offsets on that. But I hope that you can see it doesn't really matter that it's not really real, because she believes it's real. And in that sense, it's real to her. And it really should force us to start to question the whole idea of marriage in general. I don't know if it gets worse or better, but this woman married her dog. Amanda Rogers married her dog. Um, She says that when she saw her dog uh, as a puppy, she knew that they were meant to be. And it says down the bottom, a British woman says she has finally found the true meaning of marriage now that she has divorced her husband and married her dog. So, yeah, I really don't know if that's better or worse at all. I've got no idea. You can make the call on that. The first one is fairly harmless, marrying a bridge. The second one's fairly harmless, marrying a dog. The third one's not fairly harmless. Married lesbian Thrupple, that's three people together, Doll, Kitten and Bryn, are now having a baby. This is where it starts to get a little bit more serious because these people are bringing other people that don't have a choice into their idea of what marriage is. Okay, once again, it's not official. It's not an official marriage. You can't have... Uh, they, they don't, in the, in the United States, officially recognise polygamy. Um, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Because they can call marriage and do call marriage whatever they want. Finally, I'm not sure if you've heard of this website before, ashleymadison.com. Their little slogan there is, Life is Short, Have an Affair. It's a company uh, which exists to provide married people the opportunity to have an affair. Um, and as you can see... 26 million members. Now, I think that we would be hard-pressed to find a time in human history where marriage has been more open to redefinition, ridicule and dishonour as the one that we're living in right now, based upon those pictures. But there is an ugly and unfortunate truth that the church must own up to and accept when it comes to discussing marriage. 
Because when we talk about the idea of dishonouring marriage, it can be very easy for us to blame people, to blame the media, the radical left, the homosexual, the homosexual lobby, the polygamists, even the bridge lovers. But unfortunately, the truth is that the problem with marriage starts much closer to home. Churches, uh, they like to focus so much on defending marriage against same-sex marriage, but in some ways we lost the battle a long time ago. Because we live in an age where divorce is all too common. Both within and without the church, divorce is a frequent occurrence. I remember seeing Jim Wallace on that TV program, The Project. Um, It used to be called The 7pm Project, so we did have the name first, The Project. We didn't model ourselves after them. I really hate that show, to be honest. But um, he was speaking on behalf of the Australian Christian Lobby, and he was defending marriage, or he was trying to defend marriage, but he was having a really difficult time of it, actually, because the panel was throwing questions at him to which the church, unfortunately, has no unified response. We have individual responses. Even as churches, we don't seem to have individual church responses. We have individual people responses. So many different opinions within a church. Marriage is sometimes treated just as poorly within the church as it is without. And for him to say that marriage is a lifetime commitment between a man and a woman doesn't hold much weight because it's obvious if one looks at society and even in the church that that's not what it is. So I want to talk about the very delicate and difficult area of divorce and then the even more problematic and divisive area of remarriage after divorce. But I need to make a few acknowledgements before I start. First one is obviously that I'm young, Um, not according to my students, according to my students I'm old, but... I realise the fact that, I mean, I'm 27, so you can decide whether or not you think I'm young or not. And the second one is that I've only been married for two, two and a half years, okay? Now, that means a few things. It means that what I say this morning could easily be put into the category of he's young and idealistic and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's see what he says after 40 years and four kids, right? And I do look forward to seeing what I'm going to say after 40 years and four kids. And if I change my mind, you can come and tell me about it later. Yes, I am young, and yes, I am newly married, and possibly I'm idealistic about this, but ideals are not things that should be avoided. They're things that should be attempted. They're things that should be aimed at. And if ideals are actually achievable, they're realistic. They might be hard, but they're still realistic. So the first point is, please hear what I say this morning, not just as me speaking, but Nathan and Peter as well. And not only that, but I'm going to be quoting a lot of other people that are wiser, older, and have been dead for a while. So that means they must be right. You know I'm talking about C.S. Lewis there, right? Secondly, I want to acknowledge the difficulty that some of you might have with hearing uh, what I'm going to talk about this morning. And I really want to encourage you to listen openly to it and to arrive at the end of the sermon with me together so that we can go on a further process of discussing marriage, even though it might not be the sort of topic that you were hoping I was going to talk about this morning. So with these two precursors out of the way, the truth is divorce is not God's plan for his people. Malachi 2.16 says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit And do not be faithless. And the NIV translation goes a little bit further and actually says that God says, I hate divorce. Very important thing to notice here. And I love the way that Nathan led us in worship this morning, talking about the fact that we are all sinners. God does not say, I hate the divorced. He does not hate people that are divorced. He loves people. He is their father. I'm sure it would bring him great sorrow to see people go through such difficult things. He might hate divorce, but that does not mean that he hates people that are divorced. It's a painful topic, okay? The topic for today is honouring marriage, and I think it's fair to say that generally divorce does not do that. Generally. A church in which members, if you can imagine a church in which members are getting divorced and remarried to each other as a common occurrence and no one's saying anything about it and no one thinks it's a big deal, is not a church that's honouring marriage. So what does the Bible have to say about the issue? Well, the truth is that divorce is an option for Christians and it's acceptable for Christians to get divorced for certain reasons. Mark Driscoll 
says that it's, there are reasons that it's permissible, though not ideal, for Christian people to get divorced. And these are some of the reasons that he can see that the Bible creates space for divorce. Firstly, death. Romans 7, 2-4 says that death um, terminates the covenant of marriage. Adultery is kind of the main one that's talked about. In Matthew 5.32 it says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever divorces, uh, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Sexual Im- immorality goes for that as well, as it's mentioned in the one above. And uh, Driscoll kind of discusses that as being continued unrepentant sexual immorality. Um, abandonment. So 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Because the truth is, it, it doesn't necessarily take two people to get divorced. If one person's hell-bent on doing it, there's not much that you can do about it. And finally, treachery, um, which he defines as treasonous betrayal, which would include violence in the relationship. Okay. The truth is, I want to remind you again that God is a father that loves his kids. He does not hate divorced people. He just hates divorce. And we're going to see why. But I hope you can see what's written here because this is not actually really simple cut and dry stuff. There's nowhere in the Bible where we are told divorce, go for it, open slather. The whole idea of no-fault divorce doesn't exist in the Bible. There are specific reasons. Even in the instances that are given there, though, they do not necessitate divorce. Just because certain situations occur, the natural result does not have to be divorce. Adultery does not necessarily mean that you should get a divorce. It shouldn't be rushed into as an escape. Because in all of those situations, the ultimate best result possible would be the reconciliation of the marriage. For the two people who are struggling in their marriage due to the sins of one or both, the greatest outcome would be personal and relational redemption for those people. That they would be sanctified that they would be made clean through Christ and that their marriage would continue in forgiveness and grace. Probably the real problem, actually, for the church at the moment is this one. The really interesting but problematic question of what happens after a divorce, what's biblical. And this is where a lot of disagreements occur. Most churches will acknowledge the first point, that there are some reasons in which divorce is permissible. Unfortunately, though, not all churches work their hardest to produce and encourage reconciliation because that's a hard process. That can be really hard. It can be hard for a church to go through with people and obviously a lot of the time if people are considering divorce, they don't want to work towards reconciliation. Unfortunately, not all churches do that. But the second issue of remarriage is a good question. It appears in Matthew 19.9 that the only acceptable reason to remarry after divorce is adultery. It's interesting to realise something. It's interesting to realise the truth is that the Bible is abundantly more clear on this issue than it is about homosexual marriage. In fact, the Bible never talks about homosexual marriage. Obviously, it talks about homosexuality a bit in the New Testament, not as much as perhaps the church would like it to. But it talks five or six times in the New Testament about remarriage after divorce. So I find it interesting that the church has made homosexual marriage their number one enemy in recent years, while ignoring what I think is the much more obvious and stark discussion of divorce and remarriage. I think that's a bit confusing, that that we would do that. And I'm not surprised that sometimes the church can be seen as a bit of a confused joke by the people that look from the outside and realise that we're not necessarily living by the standards and by the book that we say that we are. So here's where it gets really tricky. And because it's getting tricky, I'm going to let someone else talk for me. The project does not have a consensus yet on what we believe is the biblical position on divorce and remarriage. I have my own personal leanings based upon what I understand of the Bible, as do Peter and Nathan. But what I will say is this. It might interest you that one of the frequently quoted pastors, the the people that we quote a lot here, uh, John Piper, has written a great, succinct, quite comprehensive article online 
Uh, it's a position paper about this where he looks at 11 scriptural reasons why he believes that remarriage after divorce when both spouses are still alive is prohibited by the Bible completely for any reason. And I encourage you to look it up. If you just Google divorce, remarriage, John Piper, it will be the first one that turns up on the list. It's not a long read and he's done considerable work on it. However, there are other biblical scholars um, which are just as good uh, that have put just as much work into it that disagree. Wayne Grudem, for instance, disagrees with Piper and he says that there are some situations in which remarriage is acceptable while both spouses are still alive. But I just want to read the introduction uh, to Piper's position paper on divorce and remarriage because I think that he puts it really well, the, the really difficult struggle of any church or even any individual who is trying to be consistent to the Bible but is finding their emotions uh, battling what they see in the Bible. This is what it says. All of my adult life until I was faced with the necessity of dealing with divorce and remarriage in the pastoral context, I held the prevailing Protestant view that remarriage after divorce was biblically sanctioned in cases where divorce had resulted from desertion or persistent adultery. Only when I was compelled some years ago in teaching through the Gospel of Luke to deal with Jesus' absolute statement in Luke 16.18 did I begin to question that inherited position. As a little aside here, I love what he has to say about how this came up. He was teaching through a book in the Bible and was faced with a troubling statement. And if you didn't realise, that's exactly what we're doing. We're preaching through Hebrews, I'm faced with a troubling statement, and now we have to talk about it. It kind of means that we can't just pick and choose the bits that we like and ignore the difficult stuff. That's why we do it. He continues. I felt an immense burden in having to teach our congregation what the revealed will of God is in this matter of divorce and remarriage. I was not unaware that among my people there were those who had been divorced and remarried and those who had been divorced and remained unmarried and those who were in the process of divorce or contemplating it as a possibility. I knew that this was not an academic exercise but would uh, would immediately affect many people very deeply. I was also aware of the horrendous statistics in our own country as well as other Western countries concerning the number of marriages that were ending in divorce and the numbers of people who were forming second marriages and third marriages. In my study of Ephesians 5, I had become increasingly persuaded that there is a deep and profound significance to the union of husband and wife in one flesh as a parable of the relationship between Christ and his church. All of these things conspired to create a sense of solemnity and seriousness as I weighed the meaning and the implication of the biblical texts on divorce and remarriage. The upshot of that crucial experience was the discovery of what I believe is a New Testament prohibition of all remarriage except in the case where a spouse has died. I do not claim to have seen or said the last word on this issue, nor am I above correction should I prove to be wrong. I am aware that men more godly than I have taken different views. Nevertheless, every person and church must teach and live according to the dictates of its own conscience, informed by a serious study of Scripture. And as to that last comment, that's the way that he teaches it in his church. As for, as for what that absolute statement in Luke 16.18 is, it says, um, Jesus is saying in it, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. We actually, in the, three gospel, in the four Gospels, we have three of them in which it has this, this little section. In two of them, there's the little bit that says, in ca- um, except for sexual immorality. But in Luke, it's not included. So Piper's kind of jumping on to that one, the fact that in Luke it's not included and saying that he thinks it means that there's an absolute statement that all remarriages are prohibited. Like I say, that's not necessarily our stance. There's plenty of other stances out there. All of them seem to be very academically rigorous. It is a pretty difficult one to get around though. My encouragement is that I just think individually it would be great for everyone in this church to look into it for themselves, to read the paper, to read the Bible, to pray about it. This is what it's about. It's about honouring marriage. That's what I want to talk about. And it's not about rules that exist for no reason. Jesus didn't just say that sort of stuff to fit in with his culture. He defined culture. He didn't just throw out some comments and make up arbitrary lines in the sand because he wanted to. I think that uh, C.S. Lewis says it really well when he talks about this whole idea of the morals that God has given us. 
He said, God is not snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. In reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. That is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you are being taught how to use any machine, the instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that, because of course there are all sorts of things that look all right and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine, but do not really work. I think that looking at it like that helps. Jesus is interested in our freedom, our real freedom, not what the world might call freedom. He does not want strain or friction or breakdown. So my point here is that Jesus is not just giving us an arbitrary rule that he just made up out of nowhere that's rooted in nothingness. It is built upon a much larger and completely coherent understanding of the world and of us. So back to the question of remarriage. Even if we disagree on Piper with this, you can see that that certainly wouldn't mean an opening of the floodgates. To make something permissible does not mean that it, would be made, that it should be made easy and unquestionable and you don't even have to think about it. I think that in some degrees it's the ease of the process which is a part of the problem. But I, I hope you understand what I mean when I say that. I don't mean that it's easy. I'm not meaning to imply that going through such a painful process would be easy. But perhaps in some ways the process of it leading into remarriage is easier than it should be. It may be that we naturally, as humans, try to avoid pain and minimise pain while going through such a process. I think that that would be a natural thing to do. It would be understandable. However, avoiding pain can actually sometimes minimise the amount of growth that we can go through. Romans 5.3 says to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Now this might sound like a hard pill to swallow for such a deep and personal suffering as divorce, but consider the process. Suffering produces endurance. And we can see that's the case. We know that when we're going through suffering, we can either endure it or try to escape it or minimise it. That endurance then produces character in us and that character in us produces hope. So what happens when we avoid or minimise suffering? We might actually lose out on character and the hope that can result from it. We actually sometimes, in general, we sometimes avoid purposefully whatever good might come out of a situation as we try to run away from the pain. And I think that in some ways this is demonstrated um, through the unfortunate statistics that show, in the US at least, that 50% of first marriages end in divorce, 67% of second marriages, and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. And the article kind of makes some suggestions as to why that might be. But if there's no process that, that, that we go through after something as, as difficult as a divorce, which can have such a profound impact on us, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, sometimes that impact can be taken through into subsequent marriages and issues can occur because of that. The endurance can produce character and that produces hope. Inevitably, as we discuss marriage and divorce, we're going to be led to a massive question and that's the question of what marriage actually is. This sermon's not really going to try to answer that. I think that you would need uh, a sermon dedicated to it, probably an entire series dedicated to it, um, which I'm not going to be doing or tackling today. But I have to tell you, that's a really interesting question. What is marriage? I have, um, I have young people sometimes come up to me, you know, maybe in high school or, or out of high school, um, 18, 19, and they tell me that they're interested in getting married. And... Um, and they want to know if I think that they're, if they're ready to get married or not. And usually I just ask them that question. I just ask them to define their terms. That's a little English argument thing that I always do when someone says anything. I just ask them to define their terms. And if they can't define their terms, usually they go away and I don't see them again for a few years until they've worked out what it is. But it's a really big question. And it really forces people to consider what they actually mean. Because Unfortunately, I think that people, particularly young people, have bought an idea of what marriage is 
just as a natural osmosis that's happened through their life, mostly from the media and from what they see around them. And it is difficult to define exactly what marriage is. And uh, a lot of the time, if they do have an answer, my follow-up is, why do you want to get married? And then they do leave. And uh, eventually they come back when they're 26 or something like that. These two questions really, though, can get to the heart of understanding what marriage is. So, But just very briefly, I do want to go through a quick discussion on, on what marriage is. Firstly, marriage is a sacrament. That's a word that we don't use very often in Protestantism, but in a very general sense, it means that it's a lot more than you think. It's larger than a contract, more than a friendship. It has a physicalized spiritual element, which means that in the severing of it, it is more than a mere cancellation of a relationship. God is literally in your marriage. Secondly, it's a symbol. This is similar to the idea of a sacrament in that it is a symbol of the Trinity and of Jesus' love for us, Jesus' love for the church, his bride. We are the bride of Christ and he will not divorce us. Marriage on earth is a mirror for the love, for God's love for us. It's a commitment and commitment's a little bit of a dirty word sometimes in society these days, particularly uh, in, in modern young secular society, but marriage is a commitment. In marriage, people make unconditional promises to each other. In fact, they do the very interesting thing of putting conditions on the unconditionality. They say, not even if we're poor, not even if you're sick. It's completely unconditional, and there's conditions on just how unconditional it is. That's why it's scary, because it doesn't matter what happens. The promise stands forever. That's why it's such a big deal. It's a covenant, and this is kind of like the Christian version of the commitment and made stronger by the merit of the spiritual aspect of it. Covenants were thought of in biblical times as unbreakable spiritual promises. That's involving that God element in there again. A secular marriage might say that it's a commitment, but it's doubtful that they would use the word covenant. It's a relationship. Obviously, it's a relationship. Which is why, as much as that woman wants to claim that she married a bridge, she didn't. It doesn't fit the criteria. The bridge does not love her back. Marriage is a relationship in which a man and a woman choose to honour and love each other above all else, forsaking all others in preference to each other. It's not good for a man to be alone. A marriage is a relationship. It's a government contract. And this is possibly the most unromantic um, part about, about marriage. We don't usually kind of get a photo of the person at the tax office signing the document and hang that on the wall. Um, but interestingly... Strangely, it is what we turn marriage into when it comes to divorce. If a Christian at at a church is waiting for a divorce to go through so that they can pursue someone in a marriage, really all they've done is turn that marriage into a government contract. That's all it is. It seems that at times we pick and choose what part we want to elevate and what parts we want to uh, think lowly of. Sometimes we think and treat marriage exclusively as a government contract. And finally, it's a family. This is a very important part. And it brings me to another fairly controversial little element, which I'll touch on very briefly and then let someone else clean up the mess. Marriage is about family. This is the other main reason that the church has in some ways lost our fight against homosexual marriage Because we make claims such as marriage is about children, but we don't always treat it like that. We sometimes treat children as an optional extra in marriages. In fact, that was another one of Jim Wallace's arguments when he was talking about um, marriage and homosexual marriage on the project. He said marriage is about children. But clearly we can see countless examples within churches. There's no unified... um, decision by churches to say that marriage is about children it's an optional extra so returning quickly to discussing divorce and remarriage i think that it's we should get real okay are we really saying that jesus has forbidden a person who was married previously and whose partner cheats and leaves them from remarrying that's what john piper would say 
And once again, I encourage you to look further at that resource. But I don't think that we should get bogged down in that. The interesting question actually is to ask why is that idea so offensive to us? Why do we rebel at that idea that, we, that, that Jesus may have even prohibited remarriage? Why do we in our hearts think surely that's not what he's saying? Jesus wants us to be happy. God wants us to be fruitful and multiply. God says that it's not good for a man to be alone. So surely remarriage, if you've done nothing wrong in this situation, is not only acceptable, but also something that God would endorse. Well, I'm not saying that that's not the case. But why do we think like that? In some places, it's not what the Bible would seem to suggest. In other places, there, are, there is room for it. But the question is, what do we do when our feelings come against the Bible? in such an important area as this. Here's the thing. When, what are we appealing to when we think that marriage must surely be an acceptable option, that remarriage must be an acceptable option? What is driving our thought pattern there? What, in that case, does marriage appear to be? Well, at that point in time, it appears to be mostly about love and about companionship and about not being alone. And this is where it gets really difficult. Because that is exactly what the world says that marriage is as well. It's exactly that people, what people that want to expand the definition of marriage say. Marriage is about being with the person that you love. The Christian church seems pretty happy with telling homosexuals that they cannot be together with the person that they love, but we do not seem as willing to say the same thing to those in our own number. And the crazy thing, as I said, about homosexual marriage, it's forbidden in a much less clear fashion than remarriage after divorces. So I hope you can see the point. This is not just about stupid rules. This is not just about lines in the sand for no reason. It's something way bigger than that. When we take our emotions and we base marriage and who can marry who and when entirely upon our emotions... Marriage can become a really confused idea. In many ways, the church has modelled to the world that marriage is all about romantic love. So I'm not surprised that they think that we're ignorant bigots when we tell them that their romantic love doesn't count. The truth is that marriage is much more than just that. It's much more. Isolating the relationship component as being the main factor in marriage, ignoring the fact that it is a covenant, a commitment, a sacrament, a symbol, and a family, only leaves a relationship and a contract. And if that's all that marriage is, why can't everyone have it? See, we don't honour marriage by degrading it or by isolating the parts of it that we like and make us feel good and treating it as though that's all that it is. Marriage is more than love, and love is more than sex. And when we treat marriage as love and love as sex, obviously anything goes. And sometimes the church does that as well. Christians do that. At least that's the way some teenagers that I've spoken to think. To sum it up, I'd like to quote C.S. Lewis, as always, uh, in his chapter of Mere Christianity entitled Christian Marriage. To be honest, I could just read that whole chapter and we could just leave it there. That would be enough. Um, I won't do that. But I will, however, as I do every single time I preach, I think, tell you to go and get the book and to read it. Um, I've selected a few choice parts and spliced them together, and we can stop and comment as we go. But this is how it starts. Christianity teaches that marriage is for life. All churches regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body as a kind of surgical operation. Some of them think that the operation is so violent that it cannot be uh, done at all. Others admit it as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both of your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. What they all disagree with is this modern view that it is a simple readjustment of partners to be made whenever people feel they are no longer in love with one another or when either of them falls in love with someone else. Now perhaps we can stop here and pause and actually consider how true that is these days. This was written 50-odd years ago, and Lewis seems to be implying that all churches agree on that first stuff. And I don't necessarily think that that's the case for all churches anymore. I don't necessarily think that all churches think 
that highly of marriage anymore because we run that very difficult line of trying not to offend people. We don't want to offend people. We want to love people. We want people to be happy. And sometimes that can be very, very difficult to tread. And he continues in this chapter with which uh, something that was, for me, the most dramatic and impacting thing that I've ever read or heard about marriage. And I'm very thankful that I found it before I got married. It shaped the way that I prepared for marriage as well as my expectations and most importantly, it shaped my understanding of the incredible nature of what marriage truly is. It might sound a little bit unromantic. I said it in my wedding speech, so <laughs> probably shouldn't shouldn't have because it does sound a little bit unromantic. My brother quoted it at his wedding at the ceremony, but maybe we're just unromantic people, I don't know. But let's bear with it and see where it leads. The idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. And of course, the promise made when I'm in love and because I'm in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits me to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling a certain way. He might as well promise never to have a headache or to always feel hungry. But what, it may be asked, is the use of keeping two people together if they are no longer in love. There are several sound social reasons to provide a home for their children, to protect the woman who has probably sacrificed or damaged her own career by getting married from being dropped whenever the man is tired of her. But there is also another reason, of which I am very sure, though I find it a little hard to explain. What we call being in love is a glorious state and in several ways good for us. It helps to make us generous and courageous. But as I said before, the most dangerous thing that you can do is to take any one impulse of our own nature and set it up as the thing that you ought to follow at all costs. Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of an entire life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending they lived happily ever after is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever would be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. So this morning, I want to honour marriage for what it really is, not what it has become. Does divorce happen? Yes, it does. Is it sometimes unavoidable? Yes. Is it permitted biblically? For some special cases, yes. Does it honour marriage? Most of the time, no, it doesn't. For those people here that are unmarried, understand this. (laughs) Don't look down there. (laughs) This is vital information. Marriage is not what you have seen on TV. It is not what you have read about in books. It is not just a licence to have sex. It is not always happy. It is not even necessarily what you have seen between your parents. It's more likely, actually, what you have not seen between your parents. It is invisible because it operates firstly inside of their hearts. A choice, the choices that make marriages work are small, everyday choices, but because they build a marriage, they are glorious moments, shaping eternity, each and every one of them. So how can we, as a church, honour marriage? Well, we can start by seeing it for what it truly is. We can start by having our definition shaped by the Bible and not by our desires or by the media or even our own experiences. Those things do not change the truth. So as a church, not just as the project, but globally, we need a complete shift. We need to see marriage for the incredible and important and magical thing that it is. Marriage is far more powerful than you can possibly imagine. It is the building block of civilization and the foundation of society. Just as an aside to that, I think that the current budget, which we're hearing a lot about at the moment, a lot of problems that people have with it, and I'm not going to make any political 
points here, so don't get too worried. But a lot of problems that people have with it is that it's taking money, welfare money, from people. And in some senses, the government is in a situation where it needs to fill in the gap that the destruction of marriage has left because families are no longer capable of supporting each other because families no longer exist. And we, we all believe that single mums should be supported. It's just unfortunate that the, there's not a family structure around to be able to do that support. And it has forced the hand of the government to step in and to support them. That's what I mean when I say it's the foundation of society. It can be a source of joy. It's fast becoming extinct. It is cross-cultural, radical, important and exciting. And it's the most important thing that you can do. That doesn't mean if you're unmarried that you don't have anything to do. Whatever you do, in marriage or in singleness, doing that properly is the most important thing that you can do with regards to this. I'm not sure exactly who said it. I only know Wes has told me it before, but there's a little saying, either you're married or you're celibate. Either way, you get sanctified. That's a sanctifying process, regardless of which one you're doing. Once you're in it, it's your number one calling, your family first. Before your job, you follow God and you love your family. It mirrors God and demonstrates his love for us. It is sometimes hard, frustrating, tiring and exasperating. And that is why it's sanctifying. That's the way we need to see it. And not just see it, but then we need to live it that way as well. Live it the way that it's supposed to be by dying to our selfish desires. A good marriage is two selfless people dying to their desires, living for each other, serving God together. They get sanctified together. Living truly as one flesh, mirroring the glory of God and bringing up godly children. I've got three short statements to wrap up and then a little video. Firstly, another one from Driscoll. He says this, Marriage will not make you happy, but it will make you holy. Now, he's not saying that marriage will never make you happy. That's obvious nonsense. You'll have some of the happiest moments of your life during marriage. But the point is that happiness is not the final goal. It's not the purpose. It's a byproduct. What marriage will do is make you holy. In fact, it often does that the best at the times that it's not making you happy. Secondly, another one from Piper. Marriage is a momentary gift. Do not see it as the be-all and end-all of life. It's not. It's a part of it, and it is for now. Marriage should not be your purpose and your goal in life. In fact, a marriage that is self-obsessed, obsessed with itself, looking inward and not outward, is not a healthy marriage. See it and treat it as a gift from God and honour the gift. Finally, one from Bonhoeffer. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. And I want to give an example of this last one in the form of a video to close. You might have seen it before, but it's a wonderful example that marriage is so much higher, bigger, more important, more sacramental and holy than the base and simplistic thing that society has made it today. Ian and Larissa asked me to read a couple of quotes from a man named John Piper, who's a a well-known Bible teacher, and he talks about marriage and how it, this mystery refers to Christ and the church. And he says this, Marriage is not mainly about prospering economically. It is mainly about displaying the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church. He says, Knowing Christ is more important than making a living. Treasuring Christ is more important than bearing children. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright or it may be covered with clouds. But if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows and no calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. (laughs) 
the beauty of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. in 2005 at college and had a blast for 10 months getting to know each other and I was looking through and I found one of my favorite pictures which I think was actually taken right before his accident he set up a camera on his, his tripod and it's just a classic Ian face that to me sums up who he is we'd been dating for 10 months and he was working an extra job for his dad and he was on his way to work near Pittsburgh and we got a phone call that he had been in an accident and we didn't know if it was when he got to work or on his way and so we got down to Pittsburgh and I was just praying the whole time in the car that it wouldn't be his brain. After being at the hospital for a few hours we found out and he had been in brain surgery for a few hours and had suffered a traumatic brain injury. God totally spared his life. Uh. One night he was failing four out of five brain activity tests and the next morning he was doing well, and his brain was starting to respond again. I moved in with his family after the accident, so I was really involved in his therapy and just did whatever I could to make his life fun. We'd go out on dates, and looking back, it's weird because he couldn't talk and he couldn't eat. So we probably looked like complete weirdos being on dates, but we had a blast, and I just talked to him all the time. I knew that before Ian's accident, he was very serious about marriage and was ring shopping. So I knew where he was. Me so much after he couldn't talk, I knew that he loved me, and I knew where he wanted the relationship to go because we were dating very intentionally. We just prayed that marriage would someday happen, and watched all of our friends get married and start having families. That was challenging, but we just tried to hold out hope that that would be us someday. This is our board of gratefulness, and we encourage anybody who comes in to write a note of something they're thankful for. It could be really small. Mine is just Saturday mornings, and it's just a good way that we've found to be just practicing gratefulness. And Ian, I think half of yours say <laughs> my wifey, <laughs> which is pretty cool. <laughs> We decided that we couldn't really consider marriage as an option until Ian was able to communicate. But if he could communicate with me, then we could have a marriage, knowing it would be really different. But as long as Ian could talk to me, then we could make it work. So once Ian began communicating, it became a little bit more of an option. And then we just kind of watched Ian progress. Uh. Hi, husband. Hi, uh, wife. How are you? What? How are you? How was your day? A conversation I had with his dad, it was one of those conversations where I realized this could happen. Then that August, his dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. And at that point, his dad's biggest concern was Ian and I. And whether or not we we're going to get married or step away from our relationship. He wanted us to make a decision to move our lives in some direction. He passed away before he was able to see us get engaged, but that was a huge impetus in why we started to pursue engagement. Throughout premarital counseling, we just used this momentary marriage. It was so helpful because John Piper talked a lot about primary things and secondary things, which is really important for us because when we're walking out our marriage practically, Ian can't do the secondary things like working or making a meal for me. Everything that's primary, though, he can do, which is leading me spiritually. Ian always comes back to the foundational truths of who God is and kind of reels me back in for my emotions, and that's the most important thing. We have two friends that we're going through the book with. I think we've just been able to help them see 
that maybe the little things that they're excited for about marriage are worth being excited about, but they're not the the end all and be all of their marriage. But we also have so much from them and things that they share because our relationships are different and we can glean different things from each other. I think what helped us in deciding to make this commitment to each other, at least for me, is knowing that Ian wouldn't have left me if the roles were reversed and that we love each other and we know that God's going to be faithful to our marriage. We're able to love each other with, I think, a more Christ-like love because of Ian's disability and just understand that picture a little bit better than if you were healthy. Yeah. Agree? Yes. What about God enables you to have have a happy marriage? You know. What? He's awesome. He's awesome? Yeah. where we're going to close today. Like I said at the start, my uh, my hope, my intention was that we would leave today with a higher view of marriage than perhaps we had uh, when we came in because it's so easy for us to just accept what society says about it. Uh, but it's, it's so much bigger than that. And I know that perhaps it's been a difficult topic for some of you to hear about and I want to encourage you um, to talk about it with people, to find someone else or to find me or Nath or if you want to wait for Pete to get back, um, if you don't think I'll be able to cut it, that's fine. Um, but to but to talk about it, to deal with it, and as a church together, we can deal with this this topic of marriage. Um, if you want to stand with me, I might just pray, and then we'll finish up. Jesus, thank you, thank you, God, for creating marriage for creating a system that is so wonderful. Uh, It didn't have to be this way, and yet you know us perfectly. You know what we need more than we do. We only know what we want. And I do pray that, uh, that my words this morning have been yours, that you'll be able to work, your Holy Spirit will be able to work in all of us uh, to understand marriage and to honor marriage together as a church, uh, to honor it, in its rightful high position. And uh, I pray that your your Holy Spirit would work healing and also work encouragement, work wisdom into all of us as we consider not just our own marriages or future marriages, but how to help and encourage our children and those around us in marriage as well. Amen. Okay, we're done. So uh, I think there's a bit of morning tea out the back. And thank you very much.